Blog Talk Radio. And welcome to The Art of Film Funding. I'm your co-host, Claire Papan, along with Carol Dean, author of the best-selling book, The Art of Film Funding. Carol is also the founder and president of From the Heart Productions and the host of this show. Dissecting Docs is dedicated to our most precious and beloved filmmakers, the documentary filmmaker. We are here to honor these brilliant creatives who give of their time, energy, and sometimes their freedom to bring us the truth. They are our last vestige of sincere, unbiased reporters who give of their time, their creativity, and put their heart into their films. Don Schwartz, who will be joining us uh, uh, in uh, talking about each of the documentary films, is an actor and journalist. His book, Telling Their Own Stories, Conversations with Documentary Filmmakers, is available from Amazon. His film reviews and filmmaker profiles appear regularly on FromTheHeartProductions.com. Don posts new reviews almost daily. He holds BA, MA, PhD degrees in psychology and counseling. We also have a special guest today, Gay Dillingham. She's the producer and director of Dying to Know. And we will be covering four other films as well, That Sugar Film, The New Reichs Museum, All or Nothing at All, and Toe Tag Doc. Our critics are Don Schwartz and Carol Dean. Thank you, Claire, uh, for this lovely introduction, and we're so honored to have this extraordinary filmmaker with us today. Gay Dillingham has worked with us at From the Heart for many years, and we're so proud of her work. Uh, We'll interview her last, so we can delve into the production process of film and have a lot of, of fun and time to talk to her. So, um, Don, let's get started and give us your critique on That Sugar Film. That Sugar Film is uh, written and directed by Australian Damon Gamow, and it's distributed by Samuel Goldwyn Films, which is very cool to have uh, such a great distributor for your documentary film. And uh, as uh, I've said to everybody, this is the film I've been waiting for, a documentary about sugar. If I was a mogul, I was, would have made this film. And uh, Damon Gamo, excuse my pronunciation, uh, takes a page from Morgan Spurlock in Supersize Me. Uh, he uh, was and still is a, a very healthy eating gentleman. He takes really good care of himself, but he's been noticing and uh, his Australian compadres the, the large amount of sugar that they consume, and of course I'm sure he's been hearing the troubles with sugar, but he decided to highlight it, which it needs to be highlighted. So he was eating a very healthy diet, one that would make most of us enviable of him. No sugar, no processed food, and it was very simple. All he did was decided to eat sugar for two months, and he found that the Australian diet consists of approximately 40 teaspoons of sugar a day, the equivalency of 40 teaspoons. And for two months, he did just that. Uh, But there's a twist, and that twist is that he was eating healthy foods, low-fat yogurt, muesli bars, uh, juices, cereals, uh, no unhealthy foods uh, that were, uh, were thought to be unhealthy were on his diet. And uh, one one thing that happened, Carol, that I thought was hilarious, is he was having a bit of a problem uh, finding the equivalent of 40 teaspoons of sugar in his diet in Australia. But he t- did take a side trip during this two months to America, and he found it was very easy to get that 40 teaspoon equivalent from one Jamba Juice. I know, I know. It was an expose on America. And sugar. We have let the sugar company take over, and we don't know it. So I do. I love the film, too. And it's very well done, very clever. He's a young, handsome, uh, cheerful, lighthearted man. He's a perfect, 
He's a perfect spokesperson to, for, to us to get ourselves healthy. And the other thing that I wanted to say is, is that he was focused on, on sugar. He was focused on uh, glucose and, and uh, sucrose, of, and fructose, rather. And, and, and he wasn't really focused on carbohydrates. And so uh, what well, I say, whatever he found uh, that was problematic about sugar is, is half the story because unless you burn your carbohydrates off, they turn into sugar in your bloodstream. And you continue not burning them off, then those sugars turn into fat. So sugar is not just about diabetes. Sugar is about everything, your heart and your brain. And uh, also... Uh, Part of what Gamo did, just to, to clarify, is he got himself a, a, got himself a, quite a, a team of monitors to monitor him before, during, and after his two months of eating sugar. And uh, I think he was very, very happy. Uh, it, it took a few weeks for him to recover from those two months. Very happy to have recovered. No, I know. But uh, listen, this is uh, taking it really serious. I love it when filmmakers get into the film, and that's what he did. He, I looked at him as a courageous hero who took on this job of eating 40 teaspoons of sugar a day because that's what we're all eating and we don't know it. Uh, but it, it began to affect him mentally, emotionally, and physically. Uh, and all this time he ate the same number of calories to show us that it's not the calories, because that's what the sugar people tell us. Watch your calories, eat a good diet, and you can have sugar. But it's the sugar that puts the weight on, and this film shows you how the body processes the sucrose and the fructose. See, the body knows sucrose. It's the natural sugar, and it, get, it turns that into energy right away. That's your peach, your orange, and uh, the local fruit that you eat. But the fructose is what plays havoc in your stomach, and that's why people gain weight right in their stomach. And to prove that most of our shelved items in the grocery store have sugar in them, he did a great scene where, fast forward, he removed everything from the shelves, and we watched it to see what was left. It was only 20% of the items in the grocery store was left on the shelves. So that shocked me. That really woke me up. But I'm one of these people who shops around the store. I don't shop the aisles. I go, I do the produce. I still I go to the uh, the deli section to get my coconut uh, creamer and things like that. But I'm very careful about buying any packaged goods except for crackers, which I I don't know if I'll ever give up. But now I am so aware of why the young people are having uh, these emotional breakdowns because this this sugar puts you on a high and then you're on the low, and and it's emotionally disturbing for kids. But he had a lot of, uh, of uh, movie stars in the film, and one that I liked was Hugh Jackson. He did a very good scene for us, or... Our Damon was able to get that scene and put it in the film. He's put so much time and work into this. It is not only a work of art, but it is the most educational tool I've ever seen in a visual way on uh, the downside of sugar. The film goes back to the 70s when the low-fat movement came into being and nothing was said about sugar in your diet. And uh, then they explained that things like iced tea, which you would take for granted to have one or two teaspoons of sugar. No, nine tablespoons in one bottle. And this is the sugar that hurts your liver because it turns fructose into fat. And sugar is so powerful that you never hear a thing about it. They say eat a reasonable diet, pay attention to the calories, and this is why Damon made the film. So that he could prove to us that a normal diet is so high in sugar that even with the same calories as he ate before, he gained 20 pounds in two months and 10 centimeters on his waist. And he had the belly of fat that happens from sugar. 
So even if you don't eat much sugar or you think you don't, I highly recommend this film because you'll see how it affects Damon's emotions. He gets high, then low, and then high again, and all of this is from the sugar because it can actually cause panic attacks. And I've been hearing more young people complaining of these now, so I understand that the amount of soda in a drink like Mountain Dew has 37 tablespoons of sugar in it and 40% more caffeine than Coke. Damon went to interview people who were addicted to Mountain Dew, and one young man about 18 years old had to remove all of his teeth. What did you think of that part of the film, Don? Uh, it reminded me of my southern roots. Uh, yeah, that was a tragedy. And, of course, after uh, after he did all that, he still was drinking his Mountain Dew. You no, know, they could not get him off it. Because we have to remember that research shows that rats work harder for sugar than for cocaine. So it is a strong addiction. Well, yes, I recommend it. So, John, let's go to uh, the New Rijksmuseum. Tell us what you thought of that film. The New Rijksmuseum. It's a different ball of wax here. You're going to spend two hours and 11 minutes watching this giant building in Amsterdam be renovated. And uh, it is an an art museum. And it was uh, originally founded in 1800. And it uh, moved to its current location in 1885. So you can imagine how old that building is and and what kind of condition it was. And there was a community and a national effort to to give it the absolutely necessary renovations. And the filmmaker, and the filmmaker, I'm going to spell the filmmaker's last name because uh, this is in the Dutch language and I just don't even want to get started. Uh, the last name is H-O-O-G-E-N, like in November, D-I-J-K. And her first name is O-E-K-E. So it better just to look up the film, The New Rijksmuseum, and I have to print, I have to spell that one too, Carol. It's R-I-J-K-S-M-U-S-E-U-M. And so we follow the renovation of this building, and we're following it inside and outside the building and in the halls of power as, as there, is, there are many forces at work trying to control how, how it's renovated. And you just become involved with with that the passions of those conflicts. The biggest conflict is that there was a bike and walking path that goes through the center of the museum, open. Uh, so uh, so uh, the the bikers especially wanted to be be able to keep on doing that, and there were purists that wanted to. Uh, and close, and close that and allow people uh, uh, just have a museum instead of a bike pass. Uh, another, another fight they had was over what color to have the walls. I prefer walls to be mid-tone to dark uh, because I, I don't think light walls uh, set off works of art as well. And uh, that, was one, that, was one, the, that was one conflict that uh, I won. Uh, so they got mid-tone walls, but that is this is a film that that is not fancy. It's not. It's very straightforward, and one would think uh, it would, it's like watching paint dry or ice melt. But I was totally engaged, and and I read about it. I read that it was initially a four-hour film, and after seeing those two hours and eleven minutes, I would like to have seen that four-hour film. Utterly fascinating. Well, that's saying a lot. I mean, two hours is a, considered a long film, but it's the detail. She really got into the detail. Um, you know, this uh, Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam is often considered a pair of the Louvre, Hermitage, and the Prado. And understanding that it was mostly closed for renovation for 10 years, my gosh, this patient and painstaking filmmaker, I'm going to call her Oki, O-E-K-E, did a brilliant job of documenting the bureaucracy and the decisions that kept stalling the completion. The New York Times Review said this film was like a home renovation, but with Vermeer's. 
And what I enjoyed about Ogie's film is how she showed us the body language, the various gestures and expressions, so we felt the emotions of the museum. We saw the curators, the carpenters, the architects, the art restorers, the construction workers, and the myriad of people who were involved in this renovation. And we saw their frustrations and often their hopelessness. But Oki had her camera on the details, like the tapping of feet of the museum executive staff, the conveying anxiety over deadlines and budget problems from under the conference table. And she showed us the delicate brush and chisel strokes of restorers working to bring priceless artworks to life without damaging them. And I have to say that I totally agree with Roger Ebert's review. He said that the film's pleasure is in watching the museum curators, each specializing in a particular century, describe their fascination with their chosen epics. Now, watch them handle and interact with their favorite piece of art. It's a joy. And Mino Fitzky, the museum's curator of Asian art, is infectiously boyish like a gee whiz rocker enthusiast when he's describing what his exhibition of Japanese warrior sculptures will look like when the place finally opens. And it doesn't matter that the space is, in that moment, a flooded, semi-dark basement. His enthusiasm lights up the room. My socks are soaked, he said, but he was happy, trudging through the muddy water. And that attitude of knowledge, love, and respect for art is what makes this film really worth watching. I know it's an epic film, but I I highly recommend it. And if you're going to Europe, you might want to book a flight to Amsterdam to see for for yourself what 10 years of work and a half a billion dollars accomplished. So, Don, I read your review on our blog at From the Heart Productions, on all or nothing at all, and I really enjoyed it. So please tell our audience what you think of that documentary. Well, this is your fault, Carol. As you know, (laughs) I I would never have seen that film without Carol Dean letting me know I should see the film. And the reason I didn't want to see it is Frank Sinatra. It's like, oh, I want to go see a a film about about old-fashioned shoes or something. It's just, uh, he's an... uh, an icon from a bygone era. And I'd seen and heard enough about Frank Sinatra, I thought I knew the whole thing. And uh, this is not unusual when you put on a documentary film that you think you know it all. It's, it's uh, quite the opposite. After the first two or three minutes, I was hooked on this four-hour film, and it, it covers uh, most or all the major plot points of Frank Sinatra's life, but the detail it provides is is entertaining and provocative, and there is a lot of new information, at least for me. And I also one of the other things that had, the film has is that it uh, has a lot of early early performances by Frank Sinatra. You would not recognize him. I, I think that, that's safe to say you would not recognize this tall, thin, lanky boy singing. Uh, and I just it made me more uh, sympathetic and empathetic for the character. It also I noticed that he smokes, which I uh, he almost had no choice because that generation they all smoked. But I just was thinking, what would have happened if he did not smoke? How much longer would we have had his voice in good shape? How much longer would we have had him? Uh, I want to just uh, uh, also uh, clarify that this film is an HBO documentary. And it's directed by Alex Gibney. And after those first two or three minutes of watching the film, I wondered where, where who was doing this. And I looked up, and there was Alex Gibney's name. And whatever Alex Gibney does turns to gold. So I, I love this film, and I'm ready for more about Frank Sinatra, just like more for the from the Reich's Museum. Right. Well, that's good. No, Alex Gibney, he's a master storyteller, and he's given us another incredibly well done film so we have a major tribute to the life of Frank Sinatra I think everyone who sees this film just loves it you you feel like you're getting really close to him 
from the participation of the Frank Sinatra state as well as the family members. Uh, much of the footage has never been seen before, and it's really worth the two hours. In fact, you get sad when it's over. It's, you want more. But this shows the entire Sinatra, the singer, the actor, the father, the husband, and the philanthropist. I think some of the best insights into Sinatra come from an interview with Walter Cronkite asking him to address matters like his explosive temper. And uh, and I also love the statement from Bacall that frankly's a womanizer. Bacall says it's about him in a matter-of-fact way in an old interview that he wanted to be in this sack with everybody. Uh, it was just all of the gossip, the truth, uh, the music, uh, the way it was edited. It was fabulous. And I have to say that one night I was having dinner alone in a very posh Italian restaurant in Hollywood, it was in the 80s, and uh, a man walked in the front door, came, walked straight to my table, and he leaned over and quietly told me, Frank Sinatra is coming inside for dinner. That's all he said, and he walked away. Uh, it was a matter-of-fact voice, and I thought, wow, Frank has very good taste. And in about two minutes, Frank and a lovely woman entered, went to a quiet table in the corner, and not one person in the restaurant sat and moved from their seats. He was never disturbed, and I thought it was very nice of him to have an announcer ahead of time so no one dropped their fork or made a fuss over him. And I know he used to go to Chasen's, too, Don. That was an old Hollywood restaurant uh, I always took my father to for special occasions, and you never knew who he'd be sitting next to. And uh, Frank had parties there. He, he was a party guy who really loved to entertain and enjoy his life, and so... To me, Alex Gibney is on top of the world right now. His films are stellar, and they just keep getting better. He has an unending creative ability to bring us new films with outstanding information and unique presentation. You're never bored in his films. They are visually stunning and edited with a precision that keeps you glued to the screen. I often hear that he sits and watches the rough cuts and then gives advice, and then they take his advice and come back with another cut for more notes. He's not a day-to-day producer. I just call him the genius behind the film. Um, and back in the 90s, my Los Angeles office took Maxell Betacram to Spielberg's Shoah Foundation. And all of those historical interviews filmed by Shoah were on Maxell tapes. And my company sold them because we were the distributor for that area. Uh, so as a thank you to me, when the National Association of Broadcasters had their yearly convention in Las Vegas, Maxell said, you can see any show you want or go any place you want. And in a flash, I said, Sinatra. That's all I want to see. So I got to see one of the last uh, performances of his. Uh, and... He was so relaxed, Don. He had his glass of scotch, and he was constantly cracking jokes and telling stories between songs. His son was conducting the orchestra, and he was just having fun. And uh, I really respect him as an entertainer and as a businessman. Uh, I always felt that when he sang, it was he was singing right to me, and I guess that's what made him so popular. So... In my opinion, don't miss this film. It's really worth it. So now let's move to Toe Tag, the uh, doc from HBO. What did you think of that, Don? Oh, this is a tough one, but when you are committed to watching documentary films, you see everything from heaven to hell. And uh, this is about life in prison, and this is about life in prison for uh, men who will never get out of prison. It's called the the title is toe tag parole, and toe tag parole is a phrase that that describes when a prisoner is going to get out of prison, and that is when they're lying flat on a bier in a morgue and they have a an identifying tag on their big toe. Uh, the film is is uh, written and directed by Alan and Susan Raymond. 
and they they are focusing on murderers in prison who have been given the sentence of life without the possibility of parole. And these prisoners are in the California State Prison, uh, which is located in the Mojave Desert, and this is a particular part of that giant prison. Uh, the, uh, the prisoners are in the Progressive Programming Facility. That's what it's called. There's 600 men in that facility, and they are there, quote, seeking self-improvement, spiritual growth through education, art and music therapy, religious services, and participation in peer group sessions. It, it sounds wonderful. I'd like to be in a program like that. The filmmakers, the Raymonds, interview the prisoners, and they interview uh, some of those who are running the prison. And what you get is stories of these prisoners' crimes. Them, they, they describe their crimes, stories of who they were when the crime happened and how they have changed in the decades since they've been incarcerated. And the, the, I would say that the core issue, at least for me, the core issue, can human character change? And our society says no. Our society says hell no. So we either uh, kill the killers or uh, put them away and uh, put them in prison and throw away the key. And my answer is uh, is yes. Uh, uh, human character can change. And this film, and there are other films of this ilk, this film shows just that. And that's what's so heartbreaking and so tough about this film. You see men that deserve another chance. They deserve consideration. They deserve to be heard and understood and known. And the only people that are doing that, for the most part, are documentary filmmakers. And again, it's called Toe Tag Parole. And you can uh, go to the website and learn about how you can see it. But uh, at the moment, it uh, is on HBO. Well done. Yes. It all started um, in 2012. The Supreme Court ruling says that juveniles can no longer receive mandatory minimum sentences with no chance of parole. But the ruling was not retroactive. So thousands of inmates who were sentenced as, as juveniles are still serving life sentences. And as early as 2012, there were 301 juvenile lifers in California. And Edgar Gomez is one such lifer who was convicted at 14. One day while he was hanging out with a group of friends, a member of the group shot and killed someone with a gang affiliation. Gomez did not pull the trigger, but because he was present during the killing, he was convicted of second-degree murder, and he was 22 years old when the documentary was filmed. And Edgar says in the film, why should you just give up on a 14-year-old? And I think that's a very good question for all of us to consider. Uh, Alan Raymond, who's the uh, producer, was interviewed by Akara Mesh Towers for his excellent article. And Alan said that at 14, Edgar is clearly unable to stop what was going on. And I think the whole thing of giving sentences, which essentially means you're going to spend your life in prison, to such young people is really a horrific miscarriage of justice. All studies suggest that young men under the age of 18 are not able to always make the best decisions in difficult circumstances. Their brains aren't fully formed, and as they mature up to around age 25, when they become fully aware of things as their brain develops, then they're totally different people. So personally, I think we are too quick to lock people up on scant evidence because many times we have the wrong person and we give too harsh sentences. And since prisons are now privately owned, you can find their profit uh, online and how much money they make per prisoner is on their profit loss statement. And it's very interesting to see how they spend their money and the high profit per person that they make. And you have to remember that there have been cases where judges were caught taking bribes from prisons for sentencing people to their prisons. It's a business now. And uh, so we have to really look at what we're doing in this whole area 
of prisons. In my opinion, HBO has another excellent documentary. Now, Gabe Dillingham is on the show with us, and we'll have a discussion with her just after Don gives us his review of her brilliant film, Dying to Know. Yes, Gabe Dillingham is the uh, uh, director, producer of Dying to Know. Uh, the subtitle is Ram Das and Timothy Leary. The moment I learned that there is a, a documentary about Ram Das and Timothy Leary, I knew I was going to love it, and uh, Gay's film does, does not disappoint. Uh, she covers each of the two gentlemen individually, and she covers especially their relationship. And uh, I, I tell you, I, I could see a narrative film uh, based upon the kinds of, of uh, life arcs that, that Gay covered. Uh, and she follows Leary uh, to and through uh, his passing, and Ram Dass is still with us. And she, so she covers Ram Dass up until the, uh, the completion of the film. And uh, so all I know is, is that I, I just love this film. I, I feel that the film goes beyond, of, goes beyond the issue of uh, the issue of drugs of Timothy Leary as, as a, a revolutionary, uh, uh, Ram Das as, as uh, the researcher, this and the, and the lives they led. This this goes into, uh, I don't know, it's the, our human condition. This is beyond the issue of drugs and beyond the issue of the sensation of drugs. It, this is about who we are as, as people, and that I would say is the most important part of this film. It transcends its subject matter. Yeah, it was full of love and concern for your fellow man. I'll give my review later because we I want to hear from Gay, so I know you have some questions. Go ahead and start talking, and let's hear what Gay has to say about making the film. I, I, hello, Gay, are you there? Yes, I am. Hi, Don. Hello, hello, hello. Hi, Carol. Hi. Thank you. Oh, well, thank you so much for being on our film, on your show, and and uh, I'm just totally delighted that you could join us. And thank you for this wonderful movie. It's just this movie's in my heart. Those two characters are my heart forever. And so uh, the simple and obvious question is, how did you get involved? Um, well, you know, now I look back with 2020 vision and I see I was kind of designed to do this. But at the time, it was very uh, spontaneous. In 1995, <clears throat> we were having dinner. Um, with another couple, so four of us, and Timothy Leary had just announced in the media he was dying, and he wanted to do it creatively. And we we all discussed, we were all kind of in the media business at the time, um, and said, this is a historical moment. What could we do uh, that would be unique? So uh, my friends Alan and Sandra were the owners of Pacific Ocean Post at the time, and my soon-to-be husband, Andrew Ungerleiter, and he was the one that came up with the idea of bringing... Ram Dass down from the Bay Area to um, Los Angeles to see Timothy and put them together. So that was the big <clears throat> first seminal uh, important idea, uh, the big idea. And I, ironically, was y the youngest of the four of us sitting there. I, I, you know, they were all baby boomers, lived through the era. And I realize now it was better that I was of another generation, you know, really born in the height of it all in 65, because I, I had to go look and see for myself. Um, in doing all the research uh, after having experienced these men firsthand and then trying to reconcile why, why the caricatures that I had experienced through my kind of media culture was not at all the men and the intellects and the hearts and the, the, the really interesting people that I got to know through this, this um, uh, film and through doing this project. So it was 1995, started like I said, very spontaneously and turned into a life journey for me in terms of learning and setting the project down for many years at a time and doing my life and doing things other than filmmaking as well. And then um, Ram Dass, of course, was still alive, so I got to stay in touch with him and keep you know, being interested in his wisdom. And he never gave up on me. He just kept, every time I thought, I, I kind of felt guilty and thought I needed to hand it off to get it done sooner, He'd look at me with his, you know, contemplative gaze and say, "No, you'll you'll finish it one day. It's yours." And sure enough, uh, <laughs> I finally finished it. 
Um, and it definitely lived inside of me for 18, 19 years. And uh, I think it's a much better film now that it, you know, because it took me so long. It gave me a much wider arc of his life in particular. Uh, but also it's it's meeting the current, what I feel is the more current zeitgeist of our culture right now. People are more interested in the changing attitudes around these psychoactive substances, sacred drugs, call them drugs, call them sacred medicine, whatever you want to do. But um, we're changing our attitudes around that and some of the laws pertaining to that. And we're trying, trying to take a different approach to our, our last chapter, our rites of passage called death. So I think this is more timely now than it would have been if I'd finished it earlier. Um, so that was a long way of answering a, your question. Do you feel like I answered it? Oh, no, I, I really thank you for it. Uh, I want to just emphasize that that uh, in, in, the, in the, the the restrictive bounds of, of a documentary film, you you got you captured so much character in each of those gentlemen, and and you captured uh, slowly but surely through as the film goes on, just a beautiful relationship between the two men. Well, that was that's exactly what I fell in love with. I fell in love with their <clears throat> their relationship, and the older I've gotten, I, you know, I had to grow up too over these these years. But the older I've gotten, I really f- know that life happens relationally in relationship. Where none of us are islands, and that was the beauty of what I saw from the beginning. And um, I really uh, kept that focus. That was always the portal of the film for me. And trust me, it was very, you know, uh, there was a lot of um, tantalizing, you know, ideas of going off into a lot of other stories. You know, there's so many tangential stories to this and so many rabbit holes you can go down in terms of storytelling. And it was really difficult to take all of that and try to, you know, plow it into 90 minutes um, but I worked with David Leach, a really brilliant editor here, and transcripts. And every night I'd just work it, work it, work it. And because uh, and, there's multiple stories going on in this film, you know, each life story, their relationship, the, the backdrop to the counterculture, and how every and how they were helping, you know, um, uh, encourage this change. And they really also uh, suffered for it. In, in some ways, obviously, Tim went to prison for almost four years, of which two and a half was in solitary confinement. And, um, uh, yeah, and Ramdas, of course, uh, is more the evolutionary versus the revolutionary, which was more Tim, and he points that out in the film as well. So it was certainly uh, feeding me and has continued to feed me and, and, and you know, Watching audiences take this in and their responses right now for me has been the most rewarding because there were definitely moments over these years where I'd ask myself, why am I, why I seem crazy to be so <laughs> obsessed with this footage and this story and and hasn't this story already been told? But now I'm realizing it hasn't been told in this way and as deeply and and I'm hearing it's a kind of a legacy film and that that's very meaningful and more importantly the way people are, are absorbing it and taking it into their own life and the conversations that it's stimulating, which is exactly why I made the film, to have these deeper conversations. So that's starting to happen now that we're getting it out and you know having these this theatrical um, release, self-distributed release. My next question, how can people find Dying to Know? Oh, that's <laughs> both the... the uh, um, well... It's fairly limited right now because I, I originally, you know, thought, gosh, documentaries very rarely get to even have a theatrical release. So um, I hadn't necessarily planned for that. But I started getting a little greedy once I experienced um, audiences watching it in that ritualized space called a theater where it's on a big screen. It looks beautiful. It sounds great. And you're focused and you're with other people. And then you also get to have conversations with those people afterwards. But I, I would literally have people tell me that if I, if I sent them a link and they watched it on a computer where they may or may not even stay in the room, they may be walking around, or who knows what the distractions are, and then they see the same film on a big screen, they, say it, they tell me they think it's a different film. So I became interested in doing this theatrical release. So right now it's, it's been in the Bay Area. We're opening in San Jose on the 11th of September, Santa Cruz the 18th, probably L.A. very soon thereafter. 
um, on our website, you can sign up to to um, dying to know movie dot com to know when we will have streaming and or DVDs available. But we're going to do this theatrical run first. And as you know, that you have to do that before you release it in other ways. I'm also starting to have conversations about broadcast. So, you know, it took me 19 years to make the movie. So I call this my glacial release pattern because I'm going fairly <laughs> slow. So I do apologize to people that really want this. We've gotten so many requests for it, and I really appreciate that. And I'm terribly sorry I can't be selling the DVDs yet, but I will get there hopefully soon. And um, I just beg everybody's uh, patience and to come to a theater near you. Also, we'll do some kind of theatrical on demand, uh, looking at either Gather or Tug as as a platform where you can bring it to your city or your town you just gather up the audience in advance and get the theater and we bring it to you so um all that will be available on our website the opportunities um so it's been a real learning experience i didn't realize i was going to self-distribute i i i'm talking to a couple distributors now um, that we might be doing some hybrid models of distribution where the filmmaker stays very involved and takes certain markets and the distributors take other markets that they're really good at that I can't do and they'll have the legs to carry it, you know, years and years into the future. So it's um it's been a huge learning experience and I will uh love to um talk to you in uh, about a year to tell you what else I've learned. Yes, that will be exciting. But this is so smart of you. I think Tug and Gather are both wonderful platforms. And then you can put it in a, in a theater that is in the neighborhood where your audience is. And you know they'll go because you're pre-selling tickets. It's a wonderful way for you. That's yeah, great. Yeah. Can I take a moment to thank you, Carol, for your From the Heart Productions, your not-for-profit, because you've been my fiscal sponsor, and you've just been so generous and so good. And I um, also wanted to thank you, Don, for your extremely perceptive and generous uh, reviews that you've done. Um, I think I'll quote you on that last one you just said, which was, uh, this transcends the uh, content of the film. <laughs> so I just, sorry, I wanted to oh, thank fine. you both. Thank you very much. Yes, quote Don. He's certainly uh, spot on. Well, what I want to know is, uh, Dr. Wheel, I mean, you have the best interview in there to get him to admit that his that he was the instrument that caused uh, the, the uh, Richard to lose his job, and then um, Tim quit his, and they started on that path together. It was a very important change in the whole direction of the... How did you get that interview? Well, that's a good question. That goes back quite far, too. Um, ironically, I was uh, with my husband, Andrew Ungerleiter, and uh, Sandra Hay. We were producing uh, and Dr. Andrew Weil's first two PBS specials that were their, um, their pledge shows back in the mid-'90s. And that's also when I started this project filming Larry and Ramdas. And I had no idea Andy Weil was the one that outed Richard, um, and wrote the article that then led to his firing. And it took me years to figure that out. But most people didn't know that. On the other hand, people that were close and lived through it certainly did. <clears throat> but, um, and so I was, you know, close with Dr. Weil as well with, as, with, uh, Richard Alpert Ramdas. And, um, it took them a while to reconcile with each other. Uh, and, Finally, when um, Dr. Weil and Andy came out to see uh, Ram Dass in Hawaii a few years ago, they really had a deep um, meeting of the hearts and minds and reconciled. And so I felt it was time to make do the interview after that. So, of course, Andrew, and Andy generously uh, sat down with me to do that. It's a very fascinating part of the whole story. And there's a lot more in the interview that I couldn't include. So one day I will, through the website or through whatever, have highlights of all the interviews that are in there that I wasn't able to include in the uh, film. But that's a very important part of our history and how it all came down. And what a huge leader Andrew Weil is in the integrated health movement. I mean, he is Mr. Uh, he's the one with the big beard and the bald head, and he's been very, uh, very uh, um, instrumental in our health. Well, he's so smart. I really love. Well, his and he work. also credits. He is smart. He's very smart. Went to Harvard, obviously. Um, was in theater as well, so he's the perfect person to help um, 
articulate to a mass audience what these move the, the health movement is about, and um, and also he in my film uh, really does credit some of these sacred medicines with him seeing the world differently. That what you feel inside, you know, you it's a, it's a mind body, uh, the real mind body connection. So I was brave of him to really uh, credit. These medicines that are now being now researched at Johns Hopkins University, at New York, um, and and at UNM, as well as uh, institutes of health. So these these research studies with these psychoactive substances like psilocybin are definitely increasing, increasing, and and getting the funding again. Okay, I just want to respond to the issue of uh, an eventual DVD release. Please put as many of those interviews as you can cram onto that disc. I I will. <laughs> everything you put out. Okay, good. It, that's it. Well, let me just give you a, a hint. I want you to check out something called VHX, VictorHenryXylophone.com. Now, that's a company that you can upload your own material, and uh, they take 10% of the income is what I've read. And so, um, but, you see, you can have the film, you can have the film with bonus material. I mean, maybe you have the film at $7, the bonus material you might have at $20. And then you could have the whole Megillah with all of the interviews you've got, and you, and you might be able to get $49 for that. You hmm. should check that out because you have the greatest story ever told about two people who loved each other, supported each other, recognized their differences, went on their separate paths, but they never lost the love and compassion for each other. And right. then, Oh, thank you for it, saying that, because I'm oh, sorry, yes. continue, and then I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, well, I, nothing has touched me like this in a long time. I felt so uh, much love. Your oh. film, every frame is just full of compassion and love. And I thought you're capturing that moment in uh, at the Senate hearing, I think it was Senate, where Tim says, he's telling them how important it is for them to continue the research on these drugs. And when they totally deny that and the drugs become street drugs where people are taking them without any supervision, that's right. when he says, forget about it. That was Yeah, you criminalize and you put it on the black market. That's what happens. That's what, you know, the sad part. Well, thank you for recognizing the the compassion and love because, you know, I really hand it to Ramdas because um to be able to see Timothy Leary's life through the lens of Ramdas's love changed everything for me. And for the most part, I try to practice that now, which is you know, our culture and our media is so good at judging. You know, we chew up and we spit out and we try to find the worst in people. But when we, you know, we're all human doing the best we can. And when you look at the the power of Timothy Leary's life and what he really hoped to do, he was evangelical as a psychologist. I mean, a lot of his ideas were there before he even did these, these psilocybin mushrooms. But that just amplified what he wanted to do. And he felt he found the elixir. He said he he learned more in four hours on that first um, psilocybin mushroom trip than he had as a psychologist over 15 years. So he was bound to be provocative. And um, to to look back, he he was really scapegoated. And to look back at his life through that lens of Ramdas's love was really the power of I think of the film and certainly of the way I I got to see it. Yes, this is an important historical document. It will be around for centuries, I would say. It is so well done. I sincerely thank you for putting so much time and effort into it because sometimes the universe comes along and puts something on hold because it it will be better for you if you wait. And I I really honor you for being able to put it down, pick it up, and keep going. Well done. Yeah. <laughs> Right, you know, I, as other to other filmmakers, I would say it's not necessarily the best business model, but <laughs> on the other hand, on the other hand, when something is really, really passionate, and you know something's important. Use your instinct, get get it in the can, and you may have to set things down. Things don't always happen in a linear fashion, and you never know when when it will call you back and when you'll pick it back up. So, um, you know, I, I think that that film Boyhood got a lot of credit for organizing something over, I think it was 12 years, 
But many filmmakers, particularly documentary filmmakers, work on these things forever. (laughs) (laughs) I know it. I know. Well, you've done a wonderful job. So I just want to tell everyone, it's dyingtoknowmovie.com. You can go on her site and find out whether she uh, signs up with Gather or Tug, and you will find, uh, hopefully in the future, uh, DVDs, downloads, and right now, uh, distribution in theaters, where yeah, we're and in when. San Jose and Santa Cruz next, this next month. Wow, that's going to be a lot of fun for you. I'm so proud of you and your work. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. Thank you both, Don and Carol. You're, you're real assets to this documentary film um, world. Thank oh, you. how kind. Thank you. And, Don, thank you for all your brilliant reviews and Claire for hosting the show. And we wish you the very best of luck, Gay, with your film. Thank you. Thank you. I'll need that as well as uh, (laughs) guidance from all the other people that care about the film. So thank you. Okay. Take care. Take take care. Bye-bye. Be well, everyone. Thank you, Don. Now, in its second edition, Carol Dean's popular book, The Art of Film Funding, has 12 new chapters to cover all areas of film financing and how to avoid expensive pitfalls. Learn how to start with an idea and end with a trailer. How to make an ask for money. Create your story structure and your trailer. Legal advice, fair use, successful crowdfunding, how to ask for music rights, and what insurance you can't shoot without. Available on Amazon under Carol Dean and at FromTheHeartProductions.com. I want to remind our listeners that David Raiklin is a brilliant and talented award-winning musician who scores films and can compose music for a trio or for a full orchestra. David is a very good friend to the independent filmmaker and comes highly recommended by From the Heart Productions. If you need music to help tell your story, please contact him at davidraiklin.com. That's David, R-A-I-K-L-E-N dot com. And Carol and I want to thank you for tuning in to The Art of Film Funding. Please visit our website at fromtheheartproductions.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Good luck with your films, everyone. <laughs>